very blessed to have many capable men can preach and deliver God's word. Tonight we'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is an interesting book. There's lots of strange places, and we're in one of those strange places tonight. And there are lots of hard things in this book. It's about false teachers. It has difficult things to say. At parts, it sounds like Peter's just calling them names. But it's true. We'll get to that next week. There are hard things because we are not used to people speaking in hard ways. Anyone who studies church history is always alarmed at first to read from Luther or Calvin or anyone during the Reformation. Their polemics were so heated. And it was back and forth, Protestants and Catholics just saying the the harshest sort of things to each other. And on one level we can say, uh, thankfully, we've maybe learned how to have civil discourse in some different ways. But on the other hand, it's perhaps a measure of the extent to which we don't take things too seriously. And at times, if in previous ages, Christians have erred on the side of speaking too harshly, not speaking winsomely, then perhaps we err on the side of not seeing the danger and being too afraid of offending. Well, Peter is going to offend some of us. Maybe last week, maybe this week, maybe in the weeks ahead. But it's God's Word, and that's why here we try to preach expositionally, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. So sometimes you get to passages that you really like, and sometimes you get to passages that are hard to hear. Sometimes you get to passages and you just know these folks need to hear this. Other times you come and you think, what will the hundred people on Sunday night get from this? But I trust God and His Spirit to speak. Verse 3, where we left off last week, says this, In their greed, speaking of the false teachers, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. These false teachers, Peter says, will be punished. In the end, though they may gain a hearing now, in the end, they will face condemnation. And now, he is going to give the supporting arguments to buttress that statement. How can we be sure that God will punish the ungodly? Follow along, verse 4. For God, for if God, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, But preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep 
the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Does it matter how you live? Does it matter what you do with your sexual organs? Does it really matter? Many would say, surely it doesn't. Surely if consenting parties, it's your body, your flesh, why be so prudish, so puritanical? Why be so judgmental? Why try to tell other people how they ought to conduct and live? Does it really matter how we deal with laws, rules, authority? Does it matter how you relate to God? Does it matter how you conduct yourself in this fallen world? That's the question facing the congregation in Second Peter. And false teachers had arisen from within their midst. You see that in verse 1, chapter 2. False prophets arose among the people. There will also be false teachers among you. These false teachers had arisen and they were saying that you can live however you want. In particular, they encouraged these Christians to follow their sexual desires to wherever they would lead. So this morning, John was preaching from 1 Timothy 4 about the goodness of food and the goodness of drink, the goodness of sex. All of that is clearly biblical. And he also warned, as the Bible warns, against the abuse, against taking those good gifts and putting them outside of the fences that God has given us for our good and for His glory. And these teachers were saying, whatever you want, do it. If it makes you happy. Maybe that's where Sheryl Crow got the song from these false teachers. They were not concerned that God might disapprove of sensuality because they did not believe in a God of judgment. We saw this in chapter 1, we'll see it again in chapter 3, and we have it here in chapter 2. The false teachers did not think Christ would return. They did not think the world as we know it would come to some sort of end, and therefore they did not fear any kind of coming judgment, and they did not believe in a God who would punish their sins. As one false teacher has written in our day, quote, reality of false judgment, rather the reality of judgment seems to be a central theme across the biblical library. So far so good. Then he goes on to say, because in God's presence all pretense and hypocrisy like all hidden virtues and goodness are brought to light and our colors shine through. This means that the true accounting, evaluation or assessment of our lives, our works, our nations and our world cannot help but happen. So he's saying there will be a judgment, but here's his definition. This true accounting, evaluation, or assessment is what judgment means. He goes on to say we must stop defining it as condemnation. In other words, he says, yes, judgment is certainly a central theme in the Bible, but judgment just means an assessment, an evaluation, an exposing of of who you really are. And it does not involve a final fearful retribution. And this is clearly not the way Peter viewed judgment. It was not simply just a time 
for God to tell you what you had done, good or bad. It was a time to fear if you did not know Christ and you had not lived according to the gospel. Condemnation, in fact, is one of the main motivations Peter uses to stir up these Christians to turn away from the false teaching of these so-called prophets and turn away from their lies, commit themselves to a life of godliness. So often you, you will find well-meaning Christians saying, well, I, you know, to, to escape hell, is, is, that's not a very good motivation. And I agree, that's not the only motivation. But even Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, do not fear the one who can destroy the body, fear the one who can put body and soul into hell. Jesus said that. So the Bible is replete with warnings. It's not the only thing, it's not the only reason why we behave. Certainly that's not a fully formed Christian ethic, but it is here and it is a main motivation. This author that I just quoted, Brian McLaren, rejects what what he calls a soul sort universe. This is sort of caricature. A soul sort where he says everyone ends up in either destruction, damnation, or redemption, salvation. He says he, he rejects that. He says that's just a Greek way of thinking. But the Bible sees things far different. In this passage that we just read and in many, many more like it, we see plain as day that there is a dreadful day of judgment coming upon the ungodly. And it will be increasingly controversial and difficult for us as Christians to hold to this teaching. And it will be a test for us that we do not get bitter, but neither do we get soft. The question Peter is dealing with throughout this book is this, does it really matter how I live? And his answer is, It most definitely matters because God knows how to rescue the godly and how to punish the unrighteous. You see this in verse 9. Verse 9 gives the summary of this passage. It's this long if-then statement. So for several verses, if this, if this, if this, and then finally, verse 9, we have the... What is that, grammarians? The the apotesis? Or what's the second half of the conditional statement? Look it up. Here's the second half. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. So all of these examples we'll look at in a moment are moving toward this conclusion. Because all of these things are true, therefore God, we can be sure, knows how to rescue the godly. And just as confidently we can know that He will keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, to reach that conclusion, he gives three examples where God punishes the unrighteous and two examples where he rescues the godly. So let's look at each of those. We'll start with the negative examples. Three examples where God punished the unrighteous. The first example are these disobedient angels. Verse 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, Now, whatever the sin was, and we'll we'll come back to that in just a second, whatever the sin was that these angels committed, the point is they were punished for it. It says they were cast into hell. 
There are several Greek words for hell. Hades is one, which generally means in the New Testament the sort of realm of the dead. Then there's a Greek word Gehenna, which is more the word for what we think of as hell, the place of punishment. This is a different word, which is used very rarely. And you can see in the ESV, there's a footnote, Greek. In the Greek, it says Tartarus. This is not the final punishment, but it is a, a holding place until the judgment. It is similar to Hades. In Greek mythology, this was the place where the ungodly, the unrighteous would go awaiting their final punishment. It's also used on a few occasions in the Old Testament translation into the Greek, and Peter uses this term here. So, into hell, that is, into the... Into Uh, A place where they are in chains, not physical chains, but it means these fallen angels have been bound. They have been set aside for condemnation. It probably means their influence has been curtailed. Essentially, Peter is saying, to put it into our terminology, they are dogs on a leash at the pound. Sorry, dog lovers, love dog. But on a leash at the pound. Bad things coming They're on a leash, they have a bark, but they're restrained and they're awaiting their end. So what did these angels do to deserve condemnation? This is tricky. At first glance, it seems that Peter may be talking about some kind of prehistory fall of the angels. Calvin and many other commentators have read it this way. That there was, even before Adam and Eve, some kind of angelic rebellion. There's hints of this, just possible hints of this in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But we can't really be sure and we can't make too much of it. And what's happened to many of us, at least in Western culture, is John Milton's Paradise Lost. Even if you haven't read the massive thing, probably most people have to read some of it or they hear about it in a Western Civ class. And his view has sort of seeped in. And so we get all these ideas. Sometimes people, well, wasn't Satan, wasn't Lucifer in charge of music? Well, that's a, a Milton thing. It's not in the Bible. And we have this, this bigger view of, of this angelic rebellion. When the Bible doesn't say much about it, there's maybe a couple hints in Isaiah, in Isaiah and Ezekiel. So that's possible. But is that what Peter is talking about here? There's some kind of angelic rebellion. But I think that this passage is almost certainly talking about a different incident. Turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Now this is going from a difficult New Testament passage to one of the most obscure Old Testament passages. You can say that you were here on the night when Pastor talked about the Nephilim. Never heard the Nephilim? That's quite all right. Genesis chapter 6 is page 5. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. All his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim, footnote says, or giants. The Nephilim, which is just the Hebrew words, uh, and the translators just, when they just transliterate the word into English, it's a pretty good sign 
I don't really know what this is about. So we're just going to give you the Hebrew word, Nephilim, may mean giants. Come back to that. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So what, what is this strange passage talking about? And commentators have struggled for years and years. What does it mean? The sons of God, verse 2, saw the daughters of man were attractive. They took them as, as wives. They, they went into them. They bore children with them. Who are the sons of God? It's basically three possibilities. They could be divine beings somehow. Seems unlikely. They could be royal princes. There is some evidence that a royal prince could be called a son of God. Or they were angels. And I believe Peter, in 2 Peter 2, is referencing this event and understands this passage to be talking about angels who came to earth in human form. And if that's what Peter thinks, then I'm going to go with Peter on his interpretation of Genesis. This phrase, sons of God, refers to angels in a few places in Job, and so it's not unheard of that it would be a reference to angelic beings. They came to earth in the form of men. Think about it. There's other instances of this in the Old Testament. The three visitors who come to Abram and Sarai, and they, they make a meal for them. They were angels. Hebrews says, some of you, you know, you ought to be hospitable because some of you have entertained angels unawares. Now, if you entertain angels without knowing it, it must mean that they don't always have wings and bright clothes. And it happened to Jimmy Stewart. So they can come, angels can come in human Form. These angels had sex with human women. Now, the problem with that, that people think, well, didn't Jesus say that in heaven you'll be like the angels who are neither married nor given in marriage? So, can't angels do it? And I think we have to take Jesus to mean angels uh, in angelic form are, are not given in marriage. They are not in sexual relations with other angels, but this is sort of uh, an outlier because these angels have come, taken on human form, and they have had sex across species lines, angels and humans. So why do I think that this, going back to Second Peter, that this is what Peter is talking about when he says God did not spare angels when they sinned? Why do I think he's talking about Genesis 6 rather than a pre History, angelic rebellion. Let me give you a few reasons. First, there is a strong Jewish tradition in between the Old Testament and the New Testament that understood Genesis 6 in this way. There's some of these intertestamental books like the Testament of Naphtali, Jubilees, Damascus documents, writings of the Jewish historian Josephus, and most prominently, a book called First Enoch. Enoch, you may remember, was the seventh generation in Genesis, uh, actually the sixth from Adam, the seventh total. Enoch was this man who walked with the Lord, and then he was not. He was translated into heaven in some mysterious way. There was a book written around sometime between the third and the first century before Christ called First Enoch. Now, it certainly was not written by this Enoch, that lived thousands of years ago. But it was called First Enoch. And 
Here's what it says in chapter 6 of this book, a very popular, influential Jewish intertestamental work. Chapter 6 says, It came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days, were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. Later in chapter 7, it says, All to others together with them took unto themselves wives and each chose for himself one and they began to go in unto them and defile themselves with them, taught them charms and enchantments and they became pregnant and they bear great giants, that is, the Nephilim. So this book, First Enoch, and there were others like it, understood Genesis 6 to be talking about angels who came in human form, had sex with women, and bore forth these large people called the Nephilim. Now, turn over to Jude. You may say, well, okay, that's in First Enoch, is in some other places. How do we know that's what Peter's talking about? Jude is very similar to Second Peter. Certain parts of Second Peter 2 and Jude are identical. They either relied on each other or there was a common source or a common piece of teaching between them, but they're very, very similar. And we see that here in Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the, day of, until the judgment of the great day. So this is the same thing that Peter was talking about, Jude is talking about. And we know that Jude was familiar with this book, First Enoch. Because if you look in verse 14, it was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying... Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, etc. That's a quote from 1 Enoch 1, verse 9. So we know that Jude was familiar with it, and Jude and 2 Peter have many similarities. So if Jude is talking about 1 Enoch there, it stands to reason he's probably referring to the same incident here at the beginning of the book. There's another clue. You see verse 7, Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Likewise. Sodom and Gomorrah pursued this sexual sin likewise. Meaning, that was also the sin of the angels. So that sort of takes us out of the realm of an angelic fall before history and puts us into the realm of angels committing sexual sin, pursuing unnatural desire. And it also makes sense to see that Peter is moving chronologically through a series of events in Genesis. So he starts with the angels sinning in Genesis 6, then he moves to the flood in Genesis 6, 7 and following, and then he's going to go to Sodom in Gomorrah, which is later in Genesis 18, 19. So I agree with almost all, I mean really all of the, the, the modern commentators that I read, that Second Peter chapter 4 is talking about this sin, these angels having sex with women in Genesis chapter 6. Now, wow, that took a long time to explain. I, I just have to say, uh, give a little excursus 
just so I can use that word, excursus. But here, because you may be thinking, oh, this, this is sort of weird that, 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 well, not only the whole incident is weird, but that Jude is quoting from First Enoch. How do we understand that? And we'll see later, if we ever get there before we leave, that several other elements here in Peter's understanding is, is uh, relying on some different parts of Jewish tradition, like that Lot was righteous. You get hints of that in Genesis, but that, that's more owing to some Jewish traditions. Or that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That also is not explicit in Genesis, but later Jewish traditions. Now, what, how, what, what do we do with that? Well, first we realize there's nothing wrong that the Bible writers would use other sources. We don't think that the Bible was formed as Muslims think the Quran. They, they think that Muhammad just got a dictation from heaven and just wrote it down. That's not what we think. We think that God superintended the process so that everything in God's word is fully true, but he used the personalities, he used their intellect. We know in Luke, when he's writing for Theophilus, that he says he investigated things, so he's drawing from eyewitnesses, he's drawing from sources, he's doing a, the work of a historian. We also know there's nothing wrong with relying on Jewish tradition per se. The tradition, no doubt, got some things right. And there's nothing wrong with using a common word for the underworld like Peter does, Tartarus. It doesn't mean Peter accepts Greek mythology. In fact, we know from chapter 1, verse 16, that he distinguishes the truth of the gospel from these Greek myths. But what about First Enoch? I mean, Jude quotes First Enoch. Should, should First Enoch be in our Bibles then? Well, no. Paul, you may remember, quotes from different Greek philosophers and playwrights. In Titus, he quotes from the playwright Epimenides, who said Cretans are all liars. In Acts 17, on the Areopagus, he quoted from a philosopher, Aratus, who said we are all God's offspring. This doesn't mean their writings were inspired. They were illustrations. And Paul would find truth in these, and so he quoted from them. And Jude... You notice he quotes from 1 Enoch saying, Enoch, seventh from Adam. So did Jude think that Enoch, the person who lived at the very beginning of the world, that that Enoch wrote 1 Enoch? Because there's absolutely no way that he did, and no one thinks that he did. And I don't think Peter thought that he did. But he refers to him as Enoch, seventh from Adam, because there are a couple of places in 1 Enoch where it refers to himself in that exact term. So I think it's not so much he's quoting the person as he is quoting the book, which is referenced as Enoch, seventh from Adam. It's an unusual phrase if you think about it, because Enoch was actually the sixth from Adam. He was the seventh generation, but the sixth after Adam. But because the book uses this language, then Peter quotes from it in this way. The bottom line is neither... The Jews, nor Catholics, nor Protestants, nor Eastern Orthodox have ever considered First Enoch as a part of their sacred scriptures. But Peter quotes from it and sees truth in it, and Jude quotes from it even more explicitly. So that's the first example of sin, and then I knew that one would take a long time. So here's the second example of God punishing the ungodly, the flood. 
There's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, if God did not spare angels, why will he spare these false teachers? If God punished the entire world, what makes you think that he would not punish you or me? We have this cute picture of the flood. All the animals in the arky arky with the gopher barky barky. It's just so fun and just sending out doves and just waiting for rainbows and just having lollipops and butterflies. And it's, it's not like that. It, 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 there has never been judgment on the earth like the flood. And there will not be until the very end. Peter sees it as a warning. God did this once. He will do it one more time. The third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the classic example of God's judgment. It's referenced in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah. Jesus mentions it multiple times. Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Luke 17. Jesus, yes, he believed in judgment. These cities are leveled. This is a foretaste of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So Peter is building his case here. He says, don't you see, don't you, don't you get it? All throughout history, the angels, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, God has punished the unrighteous. Surely He has not forgotten. Surely He has not turned a blind eye to all the wickedness in our own day. As verse 3 says, their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. But God also knows how to rescue the godly. So those are the three negative. Here are the two positive examples. Number one, Noah and his family. Now it says Noah was a preacher, a herald of righteousness. This is common in the Jewish tradition. Josephus, for example, says Noah, indignant at their conduct, viewing their counsels with displeasure, urged the people to come to a better frame of mind and amend their ways. If you think about it, how could he not? be some kind of preacher of righteousness. He is building this ark for quite a long time, waiting for it to rain. Surely people came up and, hey Noah, what's going on? It's a big boat. What are you doing to the animals? Surely Noah had many occasions to explain what he was doing, why God was punishing, to implore people to repent and turn. He was a preacher of righteousness. And so should we. We must realize that increasingly we will be laughed at for doing so. If we warn of judgment, if we speak of a coming condemnation, some will think us crazy, others even worse. We'll be hated. I'm not, not trying to be melodramatic and say this all, but, but it, it's all possible. To be mocked, even by professing Christians who will think you are cruel will say, you're no different than the people, uh, the Wells Hall preacher. You're no different than the people in New York City with the sandwich board. That's all you people are. We'll all be lumped in together. But, Peter says, God knows how to save the righteous. Second Chronicles 16 says, His eyes travel to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless 
toward him. And so he will save eight people. Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, and their wives. He will save eight people if there's eight to be saved. In the whole world, he'll save eight. If there's one, he'll save one. And that brings us to the second example, Lot. Lot was the one godly family in Sodom. Now, it's curious that verse 7 makes so much of Lot as a righteous man. If you're familiar with the story in Genesis, we don't quite have that picture of Lot. He makes a bad decision. Remember when he's choosing up parcels of land with Abram and he wants to go you know, set up his camp by Sodom and Gomorrah. Bad decision. He seems sort of reluctant to leave. After he leaves, the very next story is him getting drunk, having sex with his two daughters. This doesn't seem like a very virtuous guy. But there are hints. There are hints in Genesis that though he may have been compromised in some ways, his overall disposition was still toward God. We see hints at this, that he was hospitable when the angels came and visited. We see this... Most particularly, if you think of the story, remember Abraham is, is kind of bargaining with God. It's not that he's twisting God's arm, but God is allowing Abram to have this sort of back and forth. He's sovereignly allowing it. And so, well, surely God, you would not destroy the city for, for 50 righteous people. No, not for 50. What, uh, God, forgive me, but what about for 40? You, you would save it for 40. He gets them all, what about for 10, for 10 people? God says, I, I wouldn't destroy it if there's 10 people there. And then, Genesis 18.25, the judge of all the earth will do right. He will not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. He will not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. So why did God make a point to save Lot out of this city? It must be because Lot was considered righteous. Whether it was just... You know, whether it was, uh, morally righteous or the righteousness that comes by faith. He was one of God's people. He was righteous. God said, I will not destroy in this city the righteous with the wicked. But he didn't find ten people there. He found Lot and he got Lot out of there. So Peter is right to say that Lot was a righteous man. And he gives an evidence of this. Verse 7. He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Verse 8. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. Now listen, this this is massively relevant and hard. Are our righteous souls tormented by the lawless deeds that we see and we hear? Or do we find them funny? Do we put them in our DVD players? Do we share them as a joke? It's hard not to preach these sermons and not make a reference each week to homosexuality just because these teachers were encouraging anything goes, sex, whatever, whatever you want. And certainly Christians have been guilty at times of cruelty, harshness, not loving, but rather ostracizing those who struggle. All of that is is no doubt true. But yet it concerns me. I sometimes hear Christians say, you know, we, you know, 
We, we, we shouldn't get so bent out of shape. Or even Christians who say, well, it's wrong, but you know, we need to move past you know, feeling like it's, it, it's so wrong or, or, or perverse. And Peter would say, don't move past that. But let it not stir you up to a, a, a retribution or a hatred far from that. Or should we not be like Lot, whose righteous soul was tormented to see the lawless deeds around him? He was psychologically afflicted. He never made peace with it. Are you at peace with sin in the world? It ceased to become a big deal. As one theologian put it, our great security against sin lies in being shocked at it. Have we made peace with sin that used to shock us on television? Used to shock us in movies? I have this on-again, off-again relationship with The Office, and it should be more off-again, I'm convinced. If you're over 40, you probably haven't seen it. It's okay. It's funny. And almost every time it's funny, it goes, and it just, you think, well, this isn't funny. This is not funny. This is perverse. The things that should be tormenting our souls entertain our souls. We have grown insensitive to impurity. We must realize that in the world, and this, this is not an exaggeration, People have this exact strategy. Normalize sin. Make you who think that is sin, you're weird. You're strange. You're perverse. You're messed up. You're prudish. You're Victorian. You're old school. But you're the problem. That's the strategy. So, you know, it, these things never get normalized by, you know, People are just reading all this scholarly literature and they come to a different... No, it comes through our songs and through our music and through our movies and through our television and just over and over again until you find... Well, that's so normal. It's on every single show people have sex like that. Every single show has a funny gay character. It's just normal. That's how people talk. That's the sort of language they use. They'll deal with innuendo and swear words. That's just normal. You're weird you don't do that. Doug Moo, who's one of my favorite commentators, says, What is the reaction of Christians to the increasing abandonment of Christian moral norms? Many, to be sure and to their credit, are responding vigorously with a loving but firm restatement of the biblical perspective on sexuality But many of us, I fear, are simply accepting what is happening without any undue fuss or concern. We are not distressed or tormented by what we see around us. Oh, we may be disturbed by these developments and deplore those who choose an unbiblical lifestyle. But few Christians experience the torment of soul that Lot felt as he faced the ungodliness of his society. And if we do not experience any torment of soul, it is because we do not love the law of God and we do not love the lost. Look at verse 10, and then we'll we'll land at the conclusion of verse 9 real briefly. Verse 10, as if it wasn't obvious already, 
After giving these examples, positive and negative, Peter wants to make absolutely clear what the two sins are. What, what are these two sins that the false teachers are blissfully unaware of? Number one, the lust of defiling passion. We've seen it's the angels. It was a sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah, sexual sin. We can assume in Noah's day there were sexual sins. And then with that, the other side of the same coin, they despised authority. What, what authority? Is this God's authority, Christ's authority, simply the law of right and wrong? I think it's all of the above. This is a general statement indicating these false teachers were at their core rebellious. Not the cool kind of, I'm a rebel. Rebels. They rebelled against God's design, rebelled against God's word, rebelled against the Christ they professed to believe in. These two sins, sexual sin, following all the lust of your desires, whatever, whatever it may be, it's fine. Despising authority. See, that, I wish so many times, I wish that homosexuality were not the issue of our day. I wish I were born some other day when it was the Lord's Supper or something. I mean, that's important too. I just, I, I'd, I'd much rather preach about that, write about that, be thinking about that. But this is, this is, this is one, and we can't ignore it. And we must watch this razor's edge of faithfulness and strength, and yet weakness and compassion and all the rest together. But listen, here's the bottom line: God has the right to order our sexuality. And that means, that pertains to all sorts of things, homosexuality. It pertains to illegitimate divorce and remarriage. Let's not say all of us, you know, we just get a, get a break. It pertains to modesty, what you wear, how you dress. So there, there's enough sexual sins for even conservative churches to deal with. It's not just out there, it's in here. God has the right to order our sexuality. That's what's fundamentally at stake. And here's why we can be courageous. Verse 9, God knows how to rescue the godly. So He has not forgotten you. Calvin says, What first offends the weak is that when the faithful anxiously seek aid, they are not immediately helped by God. But on the contrary, they suffer sometimes as if to pine away through daily weariness. And secondly, when the wicked grow wanton with impunity and God in the meantime is silent as though he approved of their evil deeds. That's what it looks like sometimes. God, do, do you care about any of the? Don't you see? Don't you get my soul's tormented? What about yours? Peter wants to remind us, God knows how to rescue the godly just at the right time. He has not forgotten. He knows. He sees. So we are like the princess sometimes locked in the tower and we must struggle to believe that our prince is going to ride up and save us, deliver us. Now you may not need it right now. You may not need this word. You may not feel like you are, you are persecuted. Most of us Certainly that, that word is a total exaggeration for what most of us face. But there may come a time, maybe in, in recent, maybe in soon coming times, or it may be years from now, and you will need this word. Convince you will need this word in this country to be courageous. Have confidence that God knows how to rescue the godly. 
those who stand on His Word. And then the other half, He also knows how to punish the unrighteous. Condemnation is real. Now, another sermon, another time, I want to talk more about how we can try to help people embrace this. Because this, this is, I mean, this just gets right at what the world, and maybe some of you, don't believe. Condemnation is real. God does punish the ungodly. It is part of the whole storyline of the Bible. Peter gave three examples. You could give 300 examples. Everyone here, I imagine, believes somebody deserves to be judged. You talk to even you know, someone who doesn't believe in God. Well, I mean, Hitler, okay? There's got to be something for Hitler and for Stalin, something for them. And as soon as you say, well, there's got to be something for them, let's say, well, where do we draw the line? And what if God draws the line and not you? What if God is much, much bigger? What if... God looks at our sexual sin and perverseness the way you look at Hitler and Stalin. It matters how we live. Now listen carefully, not as the root of our justification. This is not how we merit God's favor, but as the fruit of our justification. Not the root, but the fruit, the flower, the bloom. Those who will tell you or tell ones you loved that it does not matter how they live, that they can do whatever they want with their sexuality, they are false teachers. They are false teachers. Those false teachers may even love you. They may feel love toward you or toward those you know, but they are not loving you. You get the difference? They, they may... They may, feel, I'm not, they may have all sorts of warm feelings. They may be absolutely sincere. They may feel love, but they are not loving you. And it may very well lead to condemnation for them and for those who will follow their false teaching. Say, oh, this is old school. Hey, it's true. It is true. There must be a discernible difference between those in the ark and those in the water between Lot and the rest of Sodom, between the church and the world. There there must be someone were to come into your home, follow you around, your conversation, your viewing habits, the way you conduct yourselves, anything different from the rest of your neighbors. If they were to be up at Cran Hill Ranch this past weekend when we had all sorts of families there sitting around the campfire with all of you, would there have been something different about our people versus the world? And if there is nothing different, I implore you, no, no, God implores you to get into the boat. Get out of Sodom. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. But you must flee. You must run now. He will not judge the righteous with the wicked. And His arms are outstretched for any who will now run from Sodom before it is too late. And He will welcome you with open arms in Christ's name. But you must run. Let's pray.
Father. It would be easy to hear this sermon and simply be strengthened in our courage for the sort of worldview, culture clashes that we experience relative to sexuality. And we need some of that. But, oh Lord, we also need conviction of our own sin, our own worldliness. We are no longer shocked at things that should be shocking to us. We are not tormented. We have not loved your law or the lost. Forgive us. Work better things in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand for our closing song.